This Coin Week podcast is brought to you by PCGS. Are you a banknote collector? PCGS is proud to launch PCGS Banknote as a premier third-party certification service for paper currency. Utilizing a new tamper-evident plastic case that seals all graded banknotes within a safe, inert, quality holder. PCGS Banknote certification will identify, grade, and protect your banknote for generations to come. To learn more, visit PCGS.com. Jeff Shevlin has spent more than 30 years collecting and conducting research into American tokens and metals, and is a well-respected expert into the so-called dollar series, a collection of disparate metals that were popularized in the 1960s with the publication of Hibbler and Kappen's illustrated standard reference, so-called dollars. We'll talk to Jeff next on the Coin Week podcast. Oh, hey, Jeff. Thanks for joining me on the Coin Week podcast. It's good to be here. Thank you very much for, uh, for having me on your show. You know, you're one of the few dealers active in the National Coin Show circuit that is almost completely, uh, I think you're completely devoted to uh, American metals, primarily so-called dollars. Uh, and metals are a specialty area that I think has waxed and waned in popularity over the years. I think metal collecting was very important and very popular to numismatists and the collecting community uh, at large uh, when it was much smaller in the 19th century and early 20th century. But over the years, Americans have turned much of their interest towards coins, leaving metals as a side road. Uh, but I think with the popularity of uh, certified coins and with grading services in recent years recognizing the importance of preserving and protecting metals, we have seen an increase in popularity. So I wanted to talk to you about metals as a collecting area, why they were so popular at the turn of the last century, and why they might be making a comeback now. Well, sure, those are all great questions. Um, metals are a specialty area. I mean, as, as you know, there's a lot more collectors for U.S. coins, and it's much easier to become a coin collector, collecting Lincoln cents or... Uh, you know, different coinage that maybe you're familiar with that's still in circulation or that you saw when you were younger perhaps or that you just have read about. There's a lot more information available on U.S. coins. But uh, the metals market has always been more of a specialty area. Certainly years ago, back in the 1800s, the latter 1800s, most coin collections at that time had a significant portion of their collection uh, in historical metals. Uh, there were always collectors of coins, but they were more like a type collection per se. It wasn't so much the need to have every date and mint mark for a particular denomination. And collectors were interested in ancient coins and historical things, things that had told a story about um, a particular area or a historical event or something that was more relevant to, uh, to our society as a, as a whole. Well, one of the things when you think about a coin, right, I think a coin is about projecting an image that the issuing authority wants to present about its culture, its people, its power and place in the world. Metals obviously can be struck by a government and many American metals that are highly collected 
were struck by the U.S. Mint under the authority of Congress. But metals are also more democratic than coins. The government has a monopoly on producing coins, but anybody can produce a metal. And so, I think with that added democratization, you see different things that you wouldn't see on a coin. You see different types of commemorations. You see different perspectives. And I think you really get a much more intimate portrait of America as it really is on a medal as opposed to the projection of how America, or how the American government anyway, uh, idealizes and fancies itself. Do you find this observation to be the case? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the government is going to do, you know, more mainstream, more widely accepted, just things that, as you mentioned, things that they feel are going to put the government in the light that they want the government to be seen in, in a positive, in a positive view. And that, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But, um, you know, like, like you were saying, um, if you and I make coins, that's called counterfeiting. But we can strike metals. Private individuals have been, have, as well as the government has been doing that for, for, for centuries. And when they do that, when individuals or organizations or businesses outside of the government strike medals to commemorate some type of an event or promote some type of an activity, it can be however they choose it to be. It can be very biased. It could be very prejudiced. It could be very provocative, very interesting. I mean, there's so many different ways that viewpoints can be presented in medallic form and the art that it can take that it just makes this, the stories that they have to tell interesting. Well, one good example of this phenomenon is uh, you take the Morgan dollar, introduced in 1878 after the Comstock load was discovered and lobbied for in a very corrupt fashion by mining interests in the West. Uh, and then you have its metal counterparts, such as the Bryan dollar. Um, explain to people the connection between the Bryan dollar and how it might relate to the Morgan dollar. Well, sure, you bet. Um, you know, I, the the Morgan dollar, you know, which came out in 1878, was probably the, you know, one of the largest struck U.S. coins, and it's a very popular series because of its size. But the Bryan dollar is actually uh, was struck in 1898, 1900, excuse me, 1896, 1900, and 1908. Uh, primarily those years, because those are the three years that William Jennings Bryan ran for the presidency of the United Bryan and a lot of people in the United States were concerned that the United States coinage did not have full value. In other words, a Morgan dollar that was circulating at that time only had about like about a half dollar's worth of silver in it. So they believed uh, that, you know, as it used to be some years, quite a few years prior to that, that a silver dollar should have a dollar's worth of silver in it or a silver dime or whatever the case may be. So that was the platform that William Jennings Bryan ran on, the free coinage of silver. And uh, so those Bryan dollars that were struck in the 1896-1900 were satirical pieces, kind of making fun of William Jennings' platform because uh, they were, for example, depicting how large a silver dollar would have to be to have a dollar's worth of face value silver in it. 
So they're very large, and and they're saying, you know, they have little notes on them saying that this metal has one dollar worth of silver and things like that. So, um, you know, I, they don't necessarily relate directly to the Morgan dollar per se, other than the fact that that's the era that we, you know, the United States was striking up so many silver coinage that really wasn't um, necessary for the government to, you know, for circulation at that time. Well, I would say that the thing that really ties it together for me is that you have this coin where essentially the ratio between gold and silver no longer works. And so you have a coin where maybe, and this happened with trade dollars too, where an employer might pay their labor in the cheapest form of money available to them. Uh, but if that same person was to try to get a loan from a bank, the bank would demand repayment in gold, the more expensive money. Uh, and so you couldn't really easily convert your Morgan silver dollars into gold coin uh, to pay back uh, your creditors uh, with uh, face value. So the Bryan dollar was not just showing how ridiculous the idea of a giant silver dollar was, but it was also pointing out the scam that was being played on regular working class Americans. And that really was the Bryan platform bringing that uh, issue to life. Now, of course, there's all sorts of other you know, issues related to all that. But getting back to metal collecting in America, would you say that it reaches its peak in the late 19th century and early 20th century? Oh, yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with that. I think what happened around that time in the early 20th century, early 1900s, is that um, different manufacturers started coming out with coin, coin books and coin albums that were very popular, collectors would buy those, and that kind of created the idea that to have a complete collection, you need to fill in all the holes. And that's kind of transformed collecting from, you know, it kind of just changed the way people collect. So instead of people collecting maybe metals or coinage that they just had interest in, now they started looking for a particular series to specialize in and try to get all different types and varieties for a particular series. And that kind of changed the the uh, that focus on collecting U.S. coins that way. Kind of uh, turned the focus away from collecting historical metals uh, from the mainstream collector. Right, and it's interesting to point out that when you're talking about metals uh, today, we might think of a contemporary example like a Chipotle Grill free burrito metal. Uh, which I don't know if you've ever seen one, Jeff. Uh, Chipotle made these metals. They're redeemable for a free burrito, and they're given in very limited quantities to their staff, uh, or at least they were doing this about a decade ago. I don't know if they still do it. Uh, I have a few of them, in fact, and I found out after I you know, acquired them that they trade for about 50 to 70 bucks if you uh, are able to find an auction for some of the early ones online. So it's kind of crazy in a way, but that's an example where people think about metals today and they might think of a company, a marketing, uh, a product or selling something. Or maybe you take a popular figure like Ronald Reagan and you strike a commemoration of him telling Gorbachev to tear down the wall or something like that. Uh, metals also, especially in the 19th century, early 20th century, were struck to commemorate things in real time. For instance, the United States used to have a very proud tradition of having local and regional commemorations, sesquicentennials, centennial celebrations. And so oftentimes the organizers of these events or exhibitions 
would come up with metal programs uh, as souvenirs for the event or to fund the event. So you could come see something you'd never seen before, like the World's Fair, and get a medal to commemorate some of the great pavilions or architecture or exhibitions that you saw while you were there. And you can take this home with you. And I think this was a major part of metal collecting as it became popular in the 20th century. Oh, that's true. I mean, um, for example, I just purchased a collection uh, about a year ago that from an individual who was living in New York, and in that collection was the Casanova Centennial. And that was uh, in 1893, the, the city of Casanova in New York decided to hold a celebration for their, you know, the 100th anniversary of the founding of their city. And along with this, uh, this group of about two or three medals that were struck at that time was a little newspaper clipping. And it wasn't like a photocopy of one or, um, you know, a modern printout of one. It was an actual newspaper clipping that was accompanying those medals. And it was actually an article that was published uh, a few weeks or maybe a month before the celebration was scheduled. And they're talking about what their plans were to celebrate the centennial of the founding of their city. And they're going to have a parade and they're going to have all these people come and give talks. And it's going to be a social event and they're going to, you know, people are going to be spending the day there. And in conjunction with all of this celebration, they're going to strike a, a series of medals. What's kind of neat about, from a numismatic perspective, not only do you kind of get a little flavor for these particular medals, but, for example, in the current reference book uh, that was published by Hitler and Kaplan on so-called dollars, that particular medal is listed in there as being in white metal, uh, bronze, and silver. But the newspaper article talks about striking them in those compositions as well as uh, brass, copper, and aluminum. So the person that sold that collection to me, you know, had an interest in those medals, and it's probably part of it is based on the fact that they had this newspaper clipping that was undoubtedly cut out by somebody in the in that era around the 1890s. They they cut out those that newspaper clipping from their local paper. They bought a couple of the medals, and that clipping, along with those medals, had been passed down from generation to generation to various collectors who have, you know, preserved them uh, for, you know, well over 100 years, 150 years. And the stories that they tell are what's fascinating. And reading that article almost kind of takes you back to that time year. You know, they talk about how the founding fathers for that city, there are two or three people that, you know, were related to them and some of the things that they did when the city was founded back in uh, 1793 and uh, how how grateful they were and, and how, how proud they were of how their community had evolved in the past 100 years. And they were celebrating um, the successes and the progress that they have made as, as individuals in their local community. And it's just fascinating to look at those medals and realize that the, the pride that those people had of the accomplishments that they had made at that time. You know, I think this is one of the examples of how numismatic study touches so many different other pursuits. You know, thinking about what you're saying, you know, I grew up in a city that had an annual celebration and it'd basically be like a little fair and people would come to it and they'd advertise it all around and you see these celebrations like this throughout all small town America. And it'd be a way for people to come together and experience their community. 
I think as America has become more corporatized, I mean, now every city has the same chain restaurants my city has and the same chain stores my city has, that we have become more and more detached from the unique identity that each of our geographic regions has. And I think that we're not really celebrating our shared experience in the same way that we used to. And I think medals are an important reminder of how different American culture and the way that generations in the past saw their place in the world from where we're at today. Yeah, I agree. In fact, one of one of my favorite quotes is something that one of my customers, a collector, told me. He said, holding a medal is like holding history in your hand. You know, it's a little piece of history. And back in that era, you know, technology has changed us as people, us as individuals, us as a as a society in so many ways. Because back in in the 1800s, for example, you know, you couldn't watch TV, you didn't get on the radio. You know, if you wanted to be informed about something, you know, you could read the newspaper, or you would you would go out and you get a social activity with other people at you know at an event like this or whatever the case may be to kind of get updated on things that have happened in the area, plans that you as an organization or you as a, as a group of people, as a city or community or want to do in the future. You would, you would do these things together in groups, um, you know, outside of your home. And today with technology, you know, we can just read in, uh, online about, you know, some activity. We don't need to go out and actually talk to people about it. So, it, 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 our society has changed the way we interact with each other, and I think it's also kind of um, made us less sensitive or less um, appreciative of the things that we do and, and the accomplishments that uh, we have made. So let's talk about Hibbler and Kappen, their time in the hobby. Uh, and what they set out to do with uh, their reference on so-called dollars, uh, even the aspect of calling them that, where did that come from? Was their publication the first to use that term, or was it already a well-known term at that point? And when they wrote the book, were they optimistic that the series would continue on with new releases, or were they bookending a period in American numismatics that they saw as over when they were creating their catalog? Well, it's kind of like many researchers say, you know, we were standing on the shoulders of people who have done research before us. And Himmler and Kappen did an amazing book. They published it in 1963. That, and the title of the book is So-Called Dollars by uh, Charles Kappen and, and Harold Hibbler. And that was reprinted in 2008. And that is the standard reference for people who collect this series today. But there were several publications done prior to that that included so-called dollars, not in near, compre- in near so comprehensive of a format. But the term so-called dollars actually evolved um, in the late 1800s. It's attributed to one or two different people, but generally speaking, similar today, where like an auction firm has an auction and they organize the material in their auction, they have the pennies and the nickels and the dimes and the quarters and the silver coinage and the gold coinage. And back in that era, they would often have a section normally in the back of the catalog, of stuff that didn't fit in anywhere else. And those would be these historical medals and other things like that. And they started using the term to group them into an area of so-called dollars. And that term is kind of stuck to that day. And, um, you know, people have put together pamphlets and various 
um, minor publications on the series, but in 1963, when Hibbler and Kappen published their monumental book, which was about 200 pages, uh, it had photos of most of the pieces that were in there and brief descriptions of all of them. And that kind of uh, got the, you know, as a collector, you need some kind of a guideline to confine or encompass what it is that is in your series to collect. And that's what Hibbler and Kappen did. They identified, you know, about a thousand different medals. About half of them are associated with a fair or an exposition, like the 1915 Panama Pacific International Exposition. And the others are just commemorating either national or local events, like we're talking about the Casanova Centennial, the medal that struck there in 1893. And all those are in Hibbler and Kappen. And um, I don't necessarily think that, um, well, I, I think that when they did their book, they were really just taking it to the next level. And um, and and I think that we as collectors are always doing those things. And, and as you know, I'm actually working on another version that will eventually supplant the current reference book on Hipper and Kappen. And because today with our technology of the Internet, and, and the integration and collaboration with other collectors, there's so much more information that we have at our fingertips than that was available in the, you know, the late 1950s or early 1960s that um, it's really time for a new monumental evolutionary change for the whole series of collecting these historical metals, so-called dollars. So when did you encounter that book and what made you devote your collecting interest to this area of the hobby? Oh, that's a great question. Well, um, I am a typical collector. I, as a young kid, I collected coins, and I kind of lost interest um, through high school and college and my early professional career. But in my 30s, back in the 80s, I got back into coin collecting. And I was a very aggressive coin collector. I went to quite a few shows, and I was collecting huge, typical U.S. coins. I collected Lincoln cents, Indian head pennies, Buffalo nickels, mercury dimes, you know, standing liberty quarters, Washington liberty halves, Morgan dollars, peace dollars. I collected, you know, all the mainstream series. I didn't necessarily have complete collections of any of them, but I did a few of them. You know, normally I would get to the final key pieces that maybe I would need, and I never really quite finished those. But what happened is that I lived in Sacramento, California, and I was at the Sacramento Valley Coin Club meeting. That's a club that meets in Sacramento about twice a month. And, and like many coin clubs, they have an auction at their meetings. And I ended up buying a medal at one of those auctions. I paid, I think, maybe 20 or $25 for it. And I had no idea what it was. But it turns out to be a medal that was cataloged in Hilburn Kaplan's book. It's HK24. It's the U.S. Centennial Exposition Liberty Bell Medal. And I bought this medal. It was a very high relief. as a Liberty Bell on one side, Independence Hall on the other side. It was struck in 1876, and I had absolutely no idea what it was, but it was just a beautiful metal. So I started researching it and eventually found out that uh, – discovered the Hibbler and Kappen book that was published in 63. And I purchased that book. And for the next couple of years, when I go to coin shows, I would look for the coins that I needed for my collection. And if I couldn't find anything, I'd start picking up a few so-called dollars. And after two or three years, a transition occurred. 
where I flip-flopped. I would start looking for so-called dollars, and if I couldn't find those, then I'd start picking up some of the U.S. coins I was looking for. But towards the latter 1980s, I just totally lost interest in collecting U.S. coins as a series, you know, and focused on so-called dollars, which I've been collecting ever since. What appeals to me for so-called dollars is that they are hundreds of times rarer than U.S. coins, and they're hundreds of times less expensive, relatively speaking. So anybody with any budget, whether a moderate budget or an extensive budget, could put together a fascinating collection of quite scarce and interesting metals that tell stories about events in United States history. And, and the other thing I did want to mention with that, that particular medal that I bought, the Liberty Bell medal, when I purchased it, it had it came in a little envelope, a little tan envelope, and it had a, uh, an old-style script writing on it, a date like June of 91. And I bought that in the 80s. So that was that note was put on that envelope by a collector who had purchased that medal in 1891 and put it in that envelope. And here I am, you know, a hundred years later almost, purchasing it again myself. And that's, it's been like 40 years now. And that metal is still in my collection in that same envelope. So you talk about the acquisition costs of so-called dollars being proportionally cheaper than buying U.S. coins with a similar rarity. And of course, that plays into the size of the market for so-called dollars being different than the market for coins. But we have seen big prices paid for so-called dollars in recent years. The most money paid for a so-called dollar I've seen lately has been for the gold Wilson dollar, of which only five or eight are known. Is that the most expensive piece in the series? Yeah, the, the gold Wilson is certainly one of the most expensive. Actually, the most expensive one is the Erie Canal completion though, struck in gold. There's about eight of those struck in gold. But um, the, the series of so-called dollars, just like coins, you know, if you wanted to collect U.S. coins, you can buy very affordable coins. You can buy very expensive coins. What's cool about so-called dollars, though, is that you can get uncirculated metals struck, uh, you know, from the, in the 1800s, early 1900s, uh, that are very attractive, and you can you can buy those in the 50 to 100 dollar range. Many of them for less, but you know, out of the series, if you want to spend between 50 and 200 dollars for various metals. You could literally collect hundreds of different varieties that um, would put together a, a very attractive and interesting collection. And, you know, now that so-called dollars are certified, you know, I think PCGS and NGC both will grade uh, nearly every issue in the series. Uh, so now people who are not completely accustomed to the preservation state of metals and the being the fact that metals, unlike coins, are mostly purchased by the general public who do not necessarily properly store preserved metals, uh, having graded examples sort of ensures that you're getting a piece of the quality that you're paying for and that there are no surprises. Um, but with that said, it is going to raise the cost for people. You know, grading uh, metals is not cheap. There is an extra cost. So if you know how to grade the pieces, you can get them a little cheaper. If you uh, get a graded example, of course, you're paying not only for the grade, but also the, the cost to get it encapsulated. So beyond like what the certification is doing for so-called dollars, Jeff, what are the most interesting trends that you're seeing for the series that are developing in recent years? And what are some pieces in the series that you find compelling as a collector? 
Well, you've mentioned a couple of things. One about the certification. The other one is like interesting trends and compelling. Um, you know, all the major grading firms do grade so-called dollars. NGC has been doing it for quite a few years, probably 10 to 15 years. PCGS started doing them a few years ago, and Annex and ICP have been grading them all along as well. So for collectors that prefer raw or certified, you have lots of options. From my perspective, uh, as a collector and as a dealer, since I do attend about 20 shows a year all over the country at the largest coin shows, buying and selling these metals, I do see a certain amount of price resistance once you have a metal that's maybe three to $500 or more. Uh, generally speaking, most collectors prefer to have them certified than in a raw version. And uh, so the fact that these professional organizations are offering that service, I think, makes it easier for collectors to spend uh, a more significant amount of money with confidence that they're getting what they are purchasing. So from that perspective, it's helped our hobby grow and expand by giving collectors the confidence that they need or the backing and support that they need to feel comfortable in making the purchases that they're making. Uh, as far as a series that's fascinating, well, there's so many different types, it's kind of hard to say, but truly one of my favorites are the medals from the 1876 Centennial Exposition. All the exposition medals are some of my more favorite ones, <clears throat> and there's quite a few very popular expositions that have been held in the United States, like the 1915 Panama Pacific International Exposition being one of them. Excuse me. But in 1876, really the first real exposition held in the United States was the Centennial Exposition. And the official medals were engraved by William Barber. Uh, there are medals struck by Key and Soli and Lovett and very other, numerous other engravers who today are looked at as some of the more talented engravers back from that era. And the medals from the Centennial Exposition cover an interesting range of icons. I mean, obviously, you've got George Washington, you know, the father of our country, 100th anniversary of the independence. You've got Liberty Bell. You've got Independence Hall. You have all these different designs of seated dollar type designs and colonial soldiers and Declaration of Independence. There, It's full of very uh, a lot of patriotic symbols and messages about our country uh, and how uh, the founding fathers viewed the United States and the beliefs that they had and um, some of the things that, you know, the, those values that have were incorporated into our Constitution that, you know, are, are documented or reflected on the various designs of these historical medals. You know, one of the interesting things about that period, you know, you get to 1876, is uh, the country, the, our country the decade before had just went through a wrenching civil war that cost hundreds of thousands of American lives. But the southern states and the northern states both had an admiration, a shared admiration for our founding fathers. Even if the southern states seceded, they still held the founding fathers in the highest esteem. So when you get to 1876, 
Americans across the entire spectrum, veterans of the North and the South, would have been interested in purchasing these souvenirs and these mementos. In fact, I would imagine that many of the 1876 medals were purchased by veterans of that great war. So not only do you have an artifact of the celebration of the centennial of America's founding, but it was being celebrated by veterans of the American Civil War. Oh, so true. In fact, there's uh, even a, an enlisted so-called dollar talking about a group of veterans who um, had a medal struck to commemorate their visiting to the Centennial Exposition. So you're right. Veterans, um, you know, these artifacts are sold to anybody who went to those fairs, but um, veterans were very proud of the roles that they played in in um you know honoring and supporting their beliefs for our country and um so many of these were purchased by veterans that's correct so getting to the mid-20th century hibbler and kappen's book is published in 1963 uh, and there are entries in that book that touch on issues of the mid-century how much have the subject matter motifs and methods of manufacture changed for these later date entries as opposed to what was coming out in the earlier period of the series? Well, I wouldn't say there's a whole lot of difference. Well, I, I guess you could. I mean, truly, the uh, just like our coinage has evolved and the manufacturing of metals has evolved, back in uh, the late 1800s, many of the metals were, were bronzed and went through a process that would sometimes take up to a week to have these metals made. So they'd have a very high relief and uh, special presentation pieces. And those manufacturing techniques and skills have kind of faded away from that era. So today, um, you know, there are still very interesting designs being made, but probably not as artistic as they were back in that era. But even when this book was published in the 19, in 1963, the more common metals the, at that time, you know, metals, I think the latest metals that they cataloged in their book were from 1960 or 61. Those uh, designs are, they're still well struck up. They're interesting designs. Uh, they're not necessarily the large bronze metals or some of the thicker, heavier metals, but they still have interesting designs. They're just more um, kind of evolved to uh, a look and feel more similar to our coinage today as opposed to a look and feel of the uh, historical metals that were more commemorative in nature back in the 1800s. So where do you start with a series like so-called dollars? Is there a registry set available online or some sort of checklist where collectors can see where they're at in their collection? Or is it really just an individualized personal journey to collect so-called dollars? It seems like with this series, there's so many metals, so many themes, and metal compositions that getting hung up on the idea of completeness is probably a good way of overwhelming oneself. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are collectors that do collect and attempt to collect the entire series, but the general, that's not typical. Most collectors have an interest in particular things. Sometimes, well, for for example, a lot of the expositions are very popular with collectors. Some collectors specialize in different expositions, maybe two or three of them, some just a couple. 
some for uh, a lot of them. There's a lot of monetary pieces, like we mentioned, the Brian pieces, and there are a number of uh, gold pieces and other pieces that have something to do with our nation's currency, and those are a popular area for people to collect. Thomas Elder, a very famous coin dealer from New York City in the early 1900s, struck uh, well over 100 medals that were documented in Tom Torrey's book on Thomas Elder, or pamphlet that was later published in book format. And a lot of people collect you know, medals from a particular uh, person like Thomas Elder or particular engravers. Um, out of the thousand or so so-called dollars, probably a hundred or more have some type of relationship to the United States Mint, either engraved by Morgan or Barber or St. Gaudens or struck um, on mint equipment at a fair or an exposition. It was a common practice in the late 1800s and early 1900s for these expositions that were sometimes incredibly large events that the United States Mint would show up there and they'd bring the press and they'd strike medals and sell those medals as souvenirs at the exposition. Like the Columbian Exposition as held in Chicago in 1893, at that time there was 800,000 people living in Chicago and 27 million people went to Chicago that year to participate in that celebration, the Columbian Exposition, the 400th anniversary of the discovery of America. And there's well over a hundred different medals that were struck and sold at that exposition or immediately prior to that to promote that exposition as souvenirs for it. So most collectors, you know, if somebody has an interest in this series, my suggestion would be pick up the standard reference book and kind of just thumb through it and see what appeals to you. Is you know, maybe uh, some collectors like collecting medals from their particular area. If they're from Philadelphia, they might specialize in medals struck in Philadelphia. Or maybe they have a great-great-grandfather or relative that was involved with maybe the Civil War or World War II or something, and they want to collect medals from those events. So there's so many things that motivate people to collect today. It's, it's really... Um, it's so diverse, and in the field of so-called dollars, every collection is rather unique because it kind of reflects the interest that that particular collector has, and they have a they have the the you know they form their collection around metals that appeal to them, that has an interest to them, and and normally there is some type of underlining theme that kind of unites those metals. You know, maybe they're metals that were struck by um, engravers who did U.S. coins. So maybe somebody collected commemorative coins, but now they're collecting these commemorative medals that were engraved by by Robert Aikens or other people who had also done U.S. commemorative coins. So there's just so many different ways to collect. Um, and there are so many interesting designs. Uh, you can collect just silver medals. You can collect gold ones. You can take bronze. Um, if you want to put together just a type collection, one of each type, you know, you're probably talking about just maybe three or four hundred different metals in the entire series. If you want to get every every composition uh, and every variety, you're talking about maybe a thousand different metals. So um, it's pretty easy as a collector to kind of define the scope of what interests you 
and 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 determine okay it, it's this particular exposition this particular era and maybe there's 20 or 40 or 50 metals that constitute that general collecting specific and you can start focusing on those and collecting those metals and then what's fun about this is if you discover something different or new because unlike US coinage there's discoveries being made on these metals all the time because they just haven't been researched and documented like US coins have been so you might start branching out into other areas based off things that you've collected that you didn't really know much about but you end up purchasing that metal you start doing some research you discover things about it that now relate to some other metals some other areas of United States history that now you start developing an interest in so it kind of lets you it leads you down a path that you can choose which direction you go to continue formulating whatever it is that you believe is fundamental to your collection. Well, that takes me back to you and Bill Hyder's book on Charbonneau and the work he did. And of course, more recently, the book uh, you published about the Pacific Exposition, so-called dollars, which I will add is a phenomenal book. How often do you see these metals come in with their uh, original ephemera and packaging? Or like you said about your piece with the envelope and handwritten inscriptions and newspaper clippings. Do we know how these pieces were originally sold at this point based on collections that have come forward and pieces that have turned up in their original cases? Or is a lot of this stuff still open for continued research uh, because much of its actual marketing is unknown. You know, actually, to be perfectly honest, very little is really known about about most of the mintages of these metals, um, how they were sold and marketed. Uh, you know, out of, I would say that there's a good percentage that we do know because collectors have found original material or packaging or whatever that, you know, that goes along with that metal. But generally speaking, those are the things that have been lost over time. So the metals, you know, they, they will last, as long as they're not destroyed, they're going to last forever, you know. But the, the papers and the cardboard and the products that those came in, they, they deteriorate and, diesel, and and fall apart over time. So there's, you know, now 100, 150 years later, there just isn't very much information uh, on that. And unfortunately, in their era, there wasn't, they weren't really documented. You know, today, as collectors, we have an interest in the materials that were um, sold alongside with these metals, the, the brochure, brochures, the envelopes, the packaging. But collectors in that era really weren't so concerned about that. They were more concerned with the metal. So those those things have just been lost in most cases. But that's what's fun about this series because you will, as a collector, you know, when you go to a show or or check a dealer's inventory or get on the internet and do some research, you're going to find snippets of information from time to time, pieces of of documentation that re, that tells you about how the metals are struck or how many that might have been struck, the different compositions they may have been struck in. Uh, you know, like the little article I was referring to earlier that talks about. Um, the people that designed the metal that was included in the article on different compositions that are going to be struck in. So that information is pretty scarce. And 
when you find it, there's a good chance that nobody's really necessarily ever taken the time to record it and preserve that information. So that's what collectors uh, that are working with me are doing today. That's what Bill Hyder and I are trying to do. Is we're trying to gather this information related to these metals and record them uh, and start preserving that information so that future collector, collectors can understand why these metals were made uh, and know more about the background of related to them. For example, you mentioned my Charbonneau book and the Pacific Coast book. Those are both what uh, Bill and I refer to as storybooks. They're not so much catalogs for collectors. They're more storybooks because I believe that for people to develop an interest in collecting these series, these metals, or whatever it may be, uh, as far as numismatics is concerned, you need to kind of have a, a feel for the piece. Why is this interesting? What what role did it play? What makes this piece of metal significant? You know, why was it struck? Who struck it? Where? When? And I think when collectors know that they have some, a little bit of story, some background about the metals, then when they hold that metal and they look at it, they, that story kind of comes to life a little bit. So I, our first two books are storybooks to try to educate collectors on these series, snippets of information about some of the metals and why they are so fun and interesting and cool to collect. Our next book, which is going to be uh, starting to replace the current reference book, is more of a catalog book. So it will be more... Um, it'll be very useful for collectors to get their hands around what is in the series, what is it that I want to collect, but it's not, unfortunately, going to be able to tell the stories associated with all those metals because it, there just isn't enough room to do both at the same time. Storybooks, you can tell stories on a smaller number of metals and tell good stories, or you can catalog a whole bunch of metals but not have the stories. So what we do is we tell a couple storybooks, we come out with a catalog book, and then we're going to write a couple more storybooks and come out with another catalog book. Well, I definitely look forward to that. So uh, last question before I let you go. And again, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, what is on your personal want list when it comes to so-called dollars? What piece are you still looking for? <laughs> well, the... There's a couple medals that have eluded me for a while. I do have a gold Wilson in my collection, so I'm very proud of that. But there's only uh, two different gold Erie Canal completion medals that have ever been offered for sale and auction. And I've come close to purchasing one of those. And I am hoping to have one of those in my collection. There isn't one yet. But as I mentioned, there were like eight of those struck. And at that time, 1826, there are still three people alive that had signed the Declaration of Independence. And all three of those people got one, as well as uh, several living presidents, the Washington Estate and Lafayette got one. So those were all given to very significant people uh, that had played major roles in the history of the United States. And I would be honored to have one of those in my collection someday, a gold variety. Now, I do have that medal is also struck in silver and white metal. I do have a, a nice example of both of those. Well, hopefully for you, it's a realistic goal that you're able to achieve one day because uh, nobody's put the time into the so-called dollar series as much as you have. And for decades, you've promoted it 
and the hobby of collecting these pieces. And I appreciate you taking the time to share with us uh, your knowledge and expertise about so-called dollars and the medals of America. Charles, it's been a great morning spending it talking with you about so-called dollars were my favorite subjects. And thank you very much for taking the time to, uh, to do this with me. I appreciate it. Sure. Take care. All right. Thank you. Goodbye. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends. And remember, you can download every episode of the Coin Week podcast for free from the iTunes store or stream it online on our YouTube channel or on coinweek.com. For Coin Week, I'm editor Charles Morgan. Until next time, happy collecting.